Hi, I'm Eric Connor, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you an Emmy-winning actor who's appeared in two of the greatest comedies of all time, Veep and Arrested Development. Not to mention over 100 other credits, including playing a suicidal spork come to life. The fabulous Tony Hale. Well, I was an army brat, mm-hmm. so we moved like seven times before the seventh grade or something like that, and then we settled in Tallahassee, Florida, so most of my childhood was in Florida. And then I, I, was, I was not a kid who was into sports, mm-hmm. and so my parents just kind of didn't know what to do with me, and they found this little children's theater called Young Actors Theater, and which I'm incredibly grateful for, because they kind of signed me up for that. And, mm-hmm. and I'm... I'm such an advocate for arts and schools just because even if you don't make it a career like I did, certain personalities need that environment to thrive. Yes. So even if I didn't go into it, I just was a kid that needed that environment. So I'm really, really grateful for that. And then after that, I went to college in Alabama. And then when I met you, it was in New York and you had just arrived there. I had just arrived there and I studied journalism in, in college because I didn't know if I could make a career out of acting. And then after that, I said, you know, I'm going to dip my toe into the acting thing. And then in 1995, I moved to New York. And my first show was Shakespeare in the Parking Lot, mm-hmm. where I did <laughs> Taming of the Shrew. And I was there for uh, eight years. Like many an actor, it was eight years filled with no's until he got the first major yes. I moved to New York, didn't know anybody. and. Um, I had so many jobs, so many jobs. I remember I would go through this temp agency and I never could like commit to a full week so I would always just go day by day because you never knew if something was gonna come along. And now in the lobby, they would play these Jim Carrey movies all day long and it was like a purple room (laughs) and I saw that every single day. But I would temp and I would cater waiter and all this kind of stuff and then I would do this thing called Actors Connection where you would pay money to meet agents. Sounds sketchy. Uh, And I went for like four or five times, and I was like, oh, this is bullshit. I don't know why I'm doing this. And then the fifth time I went, and I met this agent with S-E-M-N-M. And she saw me as like a David Schwimmer type, because I'm like quirky and not all there. That's how she described me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty much my entire career, quirky and not all there. Anyway, so she started sending me out for like these kind of types. And and then uh, the more commercials I got, the less kind of many, many jobs I had to have. That was most of my time in New York. When Mr. Hale was first breaking into the industry, everything was done in person. Well, as opposed to now, when anyone with YouTube account or an Instagram following can get noticed. When we were starting, it was not the digital age. And so the way you got showcased or the way you got seen was you would do all of these, like, scene nights. And, like, we would do a lot of theater because agents would always go to theater to find new talent. Yep. And that was kind of the way to get yourself seen. And now, obviously, with YouTube and all this kind of stuff, there's a lot more places to get seen. But back then, that was it. So I, I, it took me seven or eight years to get an agent to represent me for TV and film because yep. they only saw me as a commercial actor. I was yes. always the quirky guy, wide-eyed, and they never could see me for TV and film. Mm-hmm. And this one manager met me and was like, all right, I'm going to start sending you for other stuff. And I was like, oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And then a year later, I think one of the casting directors who had cast me in commercials, Marcia DeBonis, this Arrested Development came through and she remembered me. Mm-hmm. And she saw the description and she was like, this sounds like Tony Hale. So I don't know what that's saying. But, um, and then she brought me in and they just kind of, um, 
I just remember reading the script, and A, I was just so grateful to have that audition. Yeah. But just the, it reminded me, I was a big Christopher Guest fan. I still am mm -hmm. with the kind of Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and all this kind of stuff. And it reminded me of that kind of style. And so I went in, and he was just kind of a, a man-child. And, and I remember I was in a sketch comedy group called King Baby, and there's a one character I did named Singing Billy who would, <laughs> who would be very, very awkward and just walk into random places and just start singing. <laughs> and I brought a little bit of that into Buster, but I remember with Buster is Mitch Hurwitz who created the show, he would always tell me that all Buster ever wanted in life was safety. That's all he wanted. And so he was always in this state of defense, like his chin would go back, his neck, his head would go back, and his hands would go back like this. And he was always just like, what's coming at me? <laughs> and so he was always in this really defensive state. And that just, I kind of always thought about that yeah. with Buster, but just very kind of an innocent, you know, it's like a seven-year-old trapped in a, at the time, 32-year-old body. Tony Hale used Buster's, we'll call it survival instinct, as a window into capturing that character. And this process has served him well, even when he's doing a character that, at first glance, doesn't seem like him at all. I remember doing this movie in 2006 with Jimmy Fallon, and it was, he was really good. It was just not a, it, the, the character I was playing, I didn't like the guy, because he was kind of a player, and he was manipulative, and he was kind of the town douchebag. And I was just like, oh, God, I know people like this. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I just didn't like this character. And I went to this woman named Diana Castle here in L.A. She's this place called the Unimagined, no, the Imagined Life, the Unimagined Life, the Imagined Life. <laughs> and I remember her saying to me, Tony, you have to realize that these characteristics are inside of you. Mm -hmm. And it was so kind of a wake-up call. I had known this, but it was so refreshing because it's that sense of, the fact is, I would be lying if I didn't say I've had moments in my life where I've been manipulative. Mm -hmm. I've had many moments in my life where I've probably been a douchebag. Mm -hmm. I'm not proud of the moments I've had in my life where I've been a bit of a player. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, and the more that you can bring out these traits in yourself with whatever, like you look at Buster, he deals with anxiety. I've dealt with anxiety. He has panic attacks. I've had a panic attack in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you have to find those places in them that are inside of you. And yes, you take it to the extreme. Mm -hmm. But when you find that place in you, not only can you give the most authentic version of that character, but no one else can do that like you. And it's like if I'm playing just an idea of a character, like if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Tony, we want you to play this, I don't know, football coach or whatever. Yeah. That's probably never going to happen. But like, you know, <laughs> it's like going to play this football coach. And in my head, I have an idea of the guy of Friday Night Lights, you yeah. know, that, that yeah. coach. But then I think a football coach is what? He's motivating. He's encouraging. He knows the game, whatever. Mm -hmm. But if I just try to play the idea of a football coach mm -hmm. like that guy in Friday Night Lights, mm -hmm. there's a thousand other people who can do that better than me mm -hmm. to play that idea. But if I bring out those traits within myself, mm -hmm. how I can be encouraging, how I can motivate someone, how I can be interested in the game, let me tell you right now, I might not get the job, but nobody else can do that because I'm bringing it out of myself and it's authentic. So I might not get it, but at least I went in there and did something that nobody else can do. Yes. And I did my best, my best version of that, if that makes sense. Well, his best version of Buster Bluth on Arrested Development turned him into a TV star. It was a dream role for any comedic actor. But as Mr. Hale learned, it takes more than achieving one's dream to actually be happy. I will say, I've learned a lot in this business, and I love, love, love talking to other actors and people who are in the business because 
So when I was in New York and I booked Arrested Development, that was by far my big thing. Mm -hmm. That was my dream. All I ever wanted was a sitcom. Mm -hmm. And when I got that sitcom and I was on a lot in the, on the Fox lot in 2003, I realized it didn't satisfy me the way I thought it was going to satisfy mm -hmm. me. And it really, really scared me because yeah. I got my dream and it mm -hmm. didn't satisfy me. And what I realized is for most of my time in New York, I was constantly looking ahead. Mm -hmm. Whatever I was going through, I was like, okay, 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 but that big thing is coming. That big thing is coming. And the fact is, if you're not practicing contentment where you are, you're not going to be content when you get what you want. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it comes easy. I'm mm -hmm. saying it's a discipline. And that's why I say practicing. Because mm -hmm. I was so far in the future all the time when I was in New York, very rarely present, I just gave that big thing so much weight and nothing can match that. You mm -hmm. can't match that weight. Mm -hmm. And the since Arrested Development, it really woke me up to beginning the process of trying to be present. Mm -hmm. And for instance, when I was in school, like you guys are now, I was always, always somewhere else in my head. I was always looking ahead. I can't even imagine being in this town where you're surrounded by all this kind of stimulus and it's just like it would be probably very, very difficult to be present here. But the more that you guys can wake yourself up to where you are and try to be present and try to make the most of these resources, it only makes whatever happens, I think, that much more rich. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult. But it's, it's one of those things that I woke up to the fact that if I don't begin the discipline of being present and waking myself up, I'm going to get to the end of my life and I'm going to look back and every season was just me constantly looking to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Having a great job. I mean, look at Arrested Development. Great cast, amazing writing, awesome opportunity, was still looking to the next thing. What, the, what's wrong with that equation? Yeah. And to the point where I wrote, the, I wrote this children's book about it called Archibald's Next Big Thing about a little chicken that gets a card in the mail <clears throat> that says your big thing is here. And he's like, where? And he goes on all these great adventures, but every time he's on an adventure, he's like, I gotta get to my next big thing. And this bee travels around with him, and the bee's like, you gotta just be, man. You gotta just be. <laughs> and then in the end, he realizes, he realizes that his big thing is right here. My big thing is talking to you guys right now. That's my big thing. And the more that I can get into that practice of waking myself up to the fact that my big thing is not somewhere else, it's right here. And I will say this, it's not that ambition is wrong, it's not that dreaming is wrong. But if I'm honest with myself, I think when I was dreaming or when I did have ambition, I think subconsciously I was saying, I will have value when this happens. Because mm -hmm. what this business does very poorly is it says, you have value when you get this. You, you have value when this. That's bullshit. Mm -hmm. That is 100% bullshit. If you guys win an Oscar a year from now, I'm telling you right now, your personal value is the exact same today as it will be after you get that Oscar. And that's something that you have to begin to remind yourself about because it's very, very important. And if anything, I mean, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to have been given the opportunities I've been given. And, and it was so nice to have the recognition. But the fact is... You know, 50 years ago, there were people who were getting Emmys, mm -hmm. and they thought they were the shit, and it's cyclical. It's mm -hmm. fleeting. Mm -hmm. It's fleeting. So the more that I can wake up to the present, and the more that I can wake up to the life around these things that are given so much power, I feel like the more of a richness it is, honestly. Which is, by the way, again, a discipline that I struggle with, and that I have to practice myself. Like, 
For instance, I have to, whenever I find myself living in the what if, I say not now. Right now I'm talking to a wonderful group at the New York Film Academy and that's where I am right now. Another thing I do is I always feel things around me. Like I'll feel the chair, I'll feel my jeans, I'll feel my jacket, just to ground myself where mm -hmm. I am. Because mm -hmm. the fact is, most of my life I've been checked out somewhere else in my head. And speaking, because I know you teach Meisner, one of the big things with Meisner is activities. And mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons that's very important is an activity and the tactile doing activity or anything grounds you mm -hmm. to where you are. It keeps you in that space. Mm -hmm. You know, because even if I'm talking to somebody in a scene, it's very easy to kind of even that check out and just yes. kind of get into the lines. Yeah. But the more I can kind of ground myself there, it really does help. Only by being fully invested in the work can an actor completely show what they alone bring to the part. I would say, I don't know if anybody else could not play those roles, but I, the version that I gave, nobody else can do that because that's out of me. And it's like, I think that's when you get to those honest places. Yeah. And it's really, you know, a big thing that I always remember in this town is comparison is the thief of joy especially with nowadays with Instagram and Twitter and all the social media when you're just seeing so many other people's lives constantly, it's really hard to not get stuck in this game of comparison and it steals your joy. Mm -hmm. And the fact is many times you can look and say, oh, why didn't I get that? It's, why didn't this happen? And oh, they did that. It's like you forget your identity and you forget the gifts that you bring to the table, mm -hmm. you know, and just to really mind those out of you rather than that sense of like I'm not like that I'm not like that I'm not like that it's like wait a second I'm falling into comparison again mm -hmm. and it really is it's I mean not that it can inspire you but most of the time if we're honest comparison many times steals your joy learning not to compare yourself to others is part of the work-life balance that everyone in Hollywood strives for Mr. Hale points to one of his Arrested Development co-stars as being an inspiration for this balance. The Fonz himself, Henry Winkler. Henry Winkler, mm -hmm. he's one of those, I really hope you guys can maybe bring him in one day. You might have already done that, but he, uh, when I came to LA, I had come from a very strong support system in New York that I really, I really loved my friends. And I had met some, not necessarily on Arrested Development, but I had met some personalities in LA that were jarring mm -hmm. to me. I just, I was very new and I didn't know what to expect. And um, Henry, when I met him, he was so gracious mm -hmm. and so humble mm -hmm. and so full of love and just kind of kindness. Mm -hmm. I had this moment where I was like, this guy has been in this business since before Happy Days, playing mm -hmm. the Fonz, mm -hmm. and he can still remain that kind of a character, like having that kind of a character and that kind of integrity. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm not saying I'm not a work in progress, but I'm saying it's possible to have that longevity in this business mm -hmm. and to still have integrity and character. And you, you know, you sometimes you meet those people who are not that way. And I was like, damn it, that's possible. Mm -hmm. And I'm not damn it, but I was so grateful. Mm -hmm. It's a gift that he gave me to be like that. And it really continues to be a gift. I've worked with a lot of, I mean, Julia's another one, like on yeah. Veep. You know, whoever's number one on the call sheet, who's the star of the show, mm -hmm. they really set the tone for the show. Yeah. They set that kind of environment. And many, you know, we've all heard these stories. Sometimes the star of the show creates kind of a fear-based environment where everybody's kind of walking on eggshells around them. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you right now, that sucks creative energy out of a space. Mm -hmm. It sucks it out. Pride, entitlement, self, all that bullshit mm -hmm. sucks creative energy out. Mm -hmm. No need for it. 
Julie was gracious. She was a team player. She came in knowing the power of an ensemble. Mm -hmm. Everybody's ideas were welcome. Mm -hmm. Her family was her first priority, not this business. Mm -hmm. And what that did is it just created this loving, trusting space where we all were able just threw ideas out and made, just wanted to make the best show possible. And it created that environment. I felt very like free to just be like, I don't know if this is Gary. Yeah. And they were like, totally get it. It's Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S. Arrested Development also gave Tony Hale the opportunity to perform with another icon and Hollywood royalty at that, the one and only Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli, it's easy, it's easy. I'm curious what it was like working with Liza Minnelli. Oh, guys, she was my girlfriend. I know. Lucille, too, who was my mother on the show was Lucille, and she was Lucille, too. I loved it. I remember the first year of Arrested Development when they came up to me. And by the way, I had never been on a lot. I had never had that much free food in my life working on a show. I was so amazed by that. And then I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, okay, so we're thinking Liza Minnelli is going to be your girlfriend. And I was like, okay, I just need a second. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to just digest that for a minute. But she, the thing is when you're dealing with icons like that, you never know which direction it's going to go. They could yeah. be really difficult or they could be as gracious as she was. She was so lovely, and all day she would just tell me stories about her growing up. And how she, you know, her mom, for those of you who don't know, her her mom was Judy Garland, who was Dorothy in Wizard of Oz. And just like, she grew up on the MGM lot. Mm -hmm. She would tell these stories of like, being in London with her mom, Judy Garland, and Vivian Lee from Gone with the Wind. And he was just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and her stories never came from a place of ego. They just came from a place of like, listen to my life. Yeah. Listen to my life. She took my wife and I out to lunch once, and she was in the back seat. And she was talking about her having just done a concert at Radio City Music Hall. And um, she's talking about her music, and I, I didn't really know her music. And I said, oh, what'd you sing? And she said, I sang the song Liza with a Z. And by the way, she's chain smoking the entire time while telling me this. Fantastic. And I'm like, please, I want everything about this moment. <laughs> and, and then she says, she says, you don't know it? I'll sing it for you. And she breaks out in song in the back seat of my car. And my wife and I are like, what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> and the best thing is she had done the song so many times that she could hear the orchestration. So she would go like, Liza with a Z, ba-da-ba-ba-bam! <laughs> and I was like, I have left my body. Yeah. And then she took us to the hamburger hamlet and would just keep telling stories. And I was just like, God, this is one of those moments I really just like, wake yourself up, Tony, to where you are. Yeah. People either thought she was Joyce DeWitt from Three's Company, uh, my mother, <laughs> or an impersonator of herself. Ah, <laughs> and I was like, this is great. And she, you know, she just like, she's old Hollywood, man. And just so loving. Really, really loving and lived a very, very colorful life, obviously. She's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, and she would sit on, she wouldn't sit on a director's chair normally. Yeah. Not normally, it was her way. Yeah. She would sit like this. Yes. Like she was just about to bust out in cabaret. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Give a little high kick. Just a little high kick. Why not? And I was, I just wanted her to. I was like, go, go, dance. <laughs> do what you gotta do. Sometimes you don't know a moment's on your bucket list until after it's happened. Just like being serenaded by Liza, Mr. Hale's time on Arrested Development felt too good to be true. 
made all the sweeter because nobody thought the show could possibly last. If I'm honest, we were never a hit when we were on air. So we definitely held it lightly. We were always on the bubble, as they say, and we never knew when we were going to get canceled. So every year I kind of expected that we were going to go away. And then they, I think, I don't think Fox was very crazy about us, but then we would get an Emmy and they'd be like, well, I guess we got to keep it around. <laughs> you know, so we were very grateful to the critics and the accolades we got because I think that really gave us longevity for those two and a half years. But the truth is, Fox didn't have to keep us around. Um, they really didn't because our ratings. So I'm, I'm very grateful that they did keep us around for what they did. But I always, we were always just like, we might get canceled tomorrow. And then Netflix brings us back, which was very surreal. So yeah, I, I always kind of never knew when we were going to go away. I was nervous about, you know, getting back into Buster if I was going to kind of match expectations because I hadn't done it so long. Yeah. But when I heard Jessica Walters, who plays Lucille, when I heard her voice go, Buster. Buster! It was like... <laughs> It was like this Pavlovian pain where I was like, I'm back. <laughs> Just this rush of, of neurosis and anxiety. <laughs> well, we're back. Arrested Development's rapid-fire jokes and intricate structure were Tony Hale's trial by fire. After that, no role could ever throw him for a loop. It is intense. I like that. Like, I was doing this thing recently, and... And which I admired their process, but I was working with an actor who really, really appreciated getting the script many days before. Okay. I have never experienced, I have, I've only experienced where the script comes that day. And, well, not the script, but like alts are constantly flying to you. And I, yeah. for something, I kind of like that energy. <laughs> but like, they were very like, it was very, very stressful. And I'm actually incredibly grateful to Veep and Arrested because it, it kind of gets you in the system like, almost don't stick too hard to the script. Now, if you're doing theater or if yeah. you're doing a play, I mean, obviously those words are set and all yes. this kind of stuff. But in my experience with TV and film, it is just that page, you hold it very lightly. Okay. You have no idea what's going to change. Both Arrested Development and Veep have such a comedic energy, you'd assume they were mostly improv But as Tony Hill explained, improv would have actually gotten in the way of Arrested's many plants and payoffs. Veep, on the other hand, let the actors go more off-leash to hysterical effect. Arrested Mitch Hurwitz, who created the show, he had such a comic grid in his head of, like, how jokes puzzled together. Like, for instance, my favorite joke <laughs> in the entire series is Tobias in the Blue Man group <laughs> because he thought it was a support group for depressed men. Are you crazy? Are you blue? Only in color, Michael. And there was all of these hidden things of like a blue hand on the wall and this meant this and this meant this. And so we never really wanted to leave the page because there was always, like for instance, when my, when my hand was eaten off by a seal. I'm a monster! There was all these previous foreshadowing jokes about hand off and like arm off and all this kind of stuff that I at the time was like, these are odd. Why is there a hand chair in my room? I didn't really understand what was going on. <laughs> you know, cut to, if I had that day been like, no, oh, I don't want to pay attention to this hand chair. I don't want to say, then I would have messed up this kind of puzzle that he had created. Yes. So we really stayed true to the page. Okay. Whereas on Veep, they had a large rehearsal process of just not necessarily new lines, but really to kind of see if it gelled, mm -hmm. if it made sense, because we really wanted that foundation of, like, this could happen, yes. you know? And so yeah. really just kind of sensing if this made sense. And, and then the great thing is working with Julia, 
you know, we would get the lines kind of locked and then we would get on set. And then it was even more joy because we could work out the physicality. Mm-hmm. So it's like we'd get on set and be like, okay, how can we bump up the comedy? Mm-hmm. And then it was like, okay, so if you drop your coat here, I'm going to catch it here. Where can you possibly hit me or yeah. or where can you abuse me more? You know, and it's yeah. that sense that's just like trying to find those bits to amp up the comedy. Yeah. And that was, there's this one scene we did, I don't remember what season it was, where she's not president anymore and we go to a museum and she's sitting behind the rope in a president's desk just to feel like a president again. Yes. And we're doing it in hiding. Yeah. And then somebody comes and I actually pick her up and then throw her over the rope. Hey, ma'am, I think somebody's coming. Oh, uh-oh. Oh! Oh, my God. 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 Her head came so close to the floor. Thank God that I didn't, like, bash Julia Louis-Dreyfus's head. But I was, I was just like, <laughs> it was so timed specifically to get it exactly, you yeah. know. And stuff like that, I'm really going to miss. Yeah. It, but it was so fun, and it was so, it looked so chaotic, but it was very choreographed. Yeah. You know, it was really, really fun. Even though he's now become more comfortable with the form, Tony Hale did not actually have much improv training. Fortunately, the acting students here at New York Film Academy do get that opportunity. I'm so glad you're taking an improv class. Mm-hmm. I wish, I wish I had taken an improv class mm-hmm. when I started out. Because I have learned more about it and I have grown with it, but it has been by being thrown in the deep end mm-hmm. and trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? Uh, I don't have many regrets, but if I could go back to those... I know anytime somebody says, oh, I wish I could go back to that time, I have no desire to go back to my early days. Yeah. yeah. But I would take an improv class because there's a real... I struggle with being in my head too much. Like, I'll do something that I'll have already thought, is it funny, is it not funny? Is it smart, is it not funny? And by the way, the moment's gone. You know, and it's like, well, I lost my moment because I was so in my head. To get into that practice and exercise that muscle just to try it, just to put it out there, might be stupid, might be hilarious, might be whatever, but just try it, you know? And Veep has really been a gift to me because it was a very safe space where we were able to just throw out ideas and try stuff. And if it sucked, it sucked. If it didn't, hey, great. So I'm very thankful for that. But classes in the beginning, that's the space to just free your mind up. I can't tell you how much that is going to work for you and how much of a gift that's going to be for you. Like really, that's a really great choice. I would encourage anybody to do it, actually. By the way, I remember when I was cast and I was like, I'm in a show with Matt Walsh who created UCB, who's pretty much is one of the founders of all that stuff. And I'm like, I don't know much about improv. I was petrified. I bet, yeah. But they just really, um, I don't know, It's the more I've done it with doing V for eight years, you just see it's all from that honest space. Yeah. You know, of just like trying not to be funny. Because with sketch comedy or doing so much comedy in New York, it's all about finding that joke. It's all about finding that bit. It's all about making somebody laugh. It was really just, and and Matt Walsh, I've studied him, and you can see many times when he's improving something, and it's more of just reactionary. Like if somebody says, I'm an astronaut and I'm going off space, like (laughs) Walsh's response would be like, wow, that's a real transition for you. That's a real, like... (laughs) That must be interesting. You know, it's like responding naturally how somebody would respond. Exactly. Yeah. And that's amazing how that's always a challenge. You know, I'm just kind of like, all right, listen, listen, focus on the other person. One of the toughest parts of the entertainment industry is, well, dealing with the entertainment industry. Letting the frustrations get into your head 
and stop you from doing your best work. Even pros like Tony Hale can feel this pressure. Fortunately for him, he also found a way to deal with it. The older I get, I realize that I spend a lot of time frustrated, and not that I still don't, but I spend a lot of time frustrated at my agents and frustrated at my reps. And then when that children's book kind of came around, I, listened, I realized how much joy I just got from generating my own stuff. And not that we ever have any real sense of like complete control, but there's a sense of ownership and the fact like, you know what, I'm just going to do this and try to do like in New York, just like I couldn't get a theatrical agent. I was super frustrated. I would just do plays and I would go through Backstage Magazine. Mm -hmm. That was like our Bible. Yep. Yep. And we would see what auditions were there, and I'm going to do this, and I'm doing this. And it was the sense of, like, how can I be active in this process rather than what is, I was doing is just getting very frustrated and just kind of sitting and waiting. And it's very hard. And not that you're not going to still be waiting for them to kind of maybe have a different opinion, but if you creatively activate yourself in something else, it's amazing. Like, even because, like, Veep finished in... December and the show's done and then you know you kind of now wonder what gigs are going to come and all this kind of stuff but during that time this children's book is now a children's series that's going to be on Netflix and it has given me so much joy and it's a very simple thing and I edit these scripts but it's something that I'm activating myself creatively and then whatever happens with you know quote money gigs or whatever like mm -hmm. that just to pay the it happens but to kind of keep my focus on something like that has really really <laughs> helped it's almost like when you when i gave it so much power of waiting it made it worse in my head rather than trying to activate myself creatively other places even if it's like you know finding a play and doing a part in that and mm -hmm. going to rehearsals and being around other artists mm -hmm. it's just that sense like oh my gosh my focus is here and then Yes, it's not like you're not going to get frustrated, you're not going to be waiting around, but it's almost like, okay, well, 40 or 50% of that attention was on this creative thing, and now it's the other half is that, rather yes. than all of it on the way. Exactly. Waiting. Yeah. Another potential frustration actors can face is being typecast. After Buster Bluth and Veep's Gary, Tony Hale could have just cornered the market on put upon neurotics. But like all good artists, he's looking to expand. That fear of being typecast. I mean, it's very easy for my work to be seen that way, and it's like, but I I've kind of don't mind playing the quirky sidekick. I kind of enjoy it, and kind of beaten down guy, because it's just fun to live in that. Concerning the drama, I love it. And I the more I realize of just like, I've already done stuff that really comes from a dramatic place, mm -hmm. but I'm doing an indie in August that is just the opposite of what I've done. And it might not, the gigs that I get in my life might not be the bread and butter for my career, like to pay, you know, I don't know that yet, but it's nice to do these indies or these side projects where you can kind of branch out a little bit. And that's, I'm looking forward to that. I'm nervous about it. I am nervous about it just because it's, there's something about doing a comedy where even doing Veep and Arrested, even Offset, everybody's kind of in this energy of play and it's fun. You know, I remember doing this Law & Order years ago where I was, um, I was playing a dad whose daughter was kidnapped. Oh, God. And I remember telling my friends, oh, I'm going to New York. I'm doing Law & Order. We can have drinks. And it'll be fun. I got there, and I started doing this character, and I, was, I just didn't want to leave my hotel room. It was so sad. Because <laughs> you kind of have to go in their space of, like, if my I have a 13-year-old daughter, if she was kidnapped, I didn't want to go out. I was just like, oh, God, I'm just going to go to bed. 
because it's in a more intense environment sometimes. And so I think it's going to be a contrast in that space, but I am looking forward to it. And what better way to expand than playing a suicidal spork named Forky in Toy Story 4? Though being in an animated film meant he couldn't rely on his considerable physical chops. I was doing the voice for Forky while I was doing Veep, and the interesting about it is my character on Veep is pretty much not allowed to speak. He could only live through his nonverbal. He was even called a bitchy mime on the show. <laughs> and so he would only use his nonverbal because she was constantly shutting me down. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I went to Forky, who didn't even have any nonverbal because he, he had no flexibility. He was a spork. And he only had these like out of control pipe cleaner arms. His googly eyes didn't even have control. They were just kind of going all over the place. He could barely walk because he had popsicle sticks for feet. So he had no <laughs> physicality, really. And he only had his voice. And so what I did is I would actually, the thing with voice acting that the more I do it, the more I realize, man, I act the hell out of that in front of that microphone and just go crazy. I mean, granted, Forky couldn't, but I did. I was just like all over the map and using my arms because at first it's very intimidating because you don't have your physicality anymore, it's only the microphone. Because as a comic actor, you get very used to like, oh, I can use my eyebrow to go up, I can do a smirk, all that nonverbal is gone. So I just learned, I'm doing the same acting, the same expressions, the same crazy in front of that microphone and just trusting that that's gonna be channeled into the microphone. I saw this cartoon once that this guy's in this voiceover booth and the director on the other side goes, okay, can you sound like you have more hair? And it was just like, <laughs> you know, just like the worst direction. <laughs> Mr. Hale gave our students considerably more positive direction. He explained that one of the most empowering things a performer can do is turn down a role they don't want to do. In other words, sometimes it's okay to say no. A big thing that I learned early on is having been an actor for so many years where you're so desperate to work, and I'm still looking, always thankful for gigs when they happen, but mm -hmm. if a job is presented to you, if you have to say no to it because you're uncomfortable with it, that guilt that rushes over your body. Yeah. How can I say no to this job because I'm an actor and I'm so grateful for the gig, mm -hmm. I feel guilty about not... The key to remember is the freedom that you can have to say no is because... If you say yes to that job, you're actually doing them a disservice because you're not going to be 100% there. And so if you can think of it like, if I say yes, they're not getting 100% for what they've paid for. And so you're actually helping them by saying no because yeah. you're not going to be in your body if you're doing something you're so uncomfortable with. There's going to be a resistance there. You're not going to be completely open, and yeah. they're not getting 100% for what they've paid for. Yeah. So you're doing them a gift by saying no. And I think that's a mind frame that's really good to get into. I'm a huge people pleaser. I like everybody to like me, yeah. you know? And it's very hard to say no. Yeah. It actually hurts my stomach. <laughs> but if you, if you say no with something that you really feel strongly about, it's amazing how it gives you that kind of power. It, it's a very it's empowering thing. Yeah. yeah, it is. And if you don't believe him, just ask Forky. One thing that Forky said in Toy Story that I love, because I do love telling people this is like, it's gonna be okay. Because I think we, as artists, very emotional, and we're, I'm, we're always kind of like, when's the shoe gonna drop? What's, it's the uncertainty of it all. But just like, I like to be told, it's gonna be okay. Because I think it really is, it is. It's gonna be an emotional roller coaster, like life. Just coming back to the space of like, 
It's all right. It's going to be okay. It's going to unfold in time, whatever happens. Some actors get that truly great career-defining role once in their life. With Veep and Arrested Development, Mr. Hale pulled it off twice, and he's got lots more to go. We want to thank him for sharing his story with our students, and thanks, of course, to all of you for listening. Check out the animated series Archibald's Next Big Thing, based on Tony Hale's book on Netflix. You could also check out our previous episode with Henry Winkler. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated by Ann Moore. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Jean Sherlock and Dan Mackler. Special thanks to our events department, Melissa Enright, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time.